main thing is authenticity of, of feeling. And blues creates this space where you can say whatever you want. Anything is allowed from the, the gory and the terrible to the exultant. And we give the example of, uh, there's a song by Skip James, uh, 2220. And it's just this beautiful keening blues. And, and you don't realize unless you've listened to it a couple, three times that he's talking about cutting his lover in half with a shotgun. But anything is allowed in the blues because it's, it's this forum between performer and audience to have emotional expiation to to get off your mind whatever you want to get off your mind greetings future fossils welcome back for episode 183 of the podcast that explores our place and time i'm michael garfield and this week we welcome mike madison of the tedeschi trucks band and ernest suarez professor of English at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., who have together written a beautiful book, Poetic Songverse, Blues-Based Popular Music and Poetry, about how in the 20th century, which they call a thorough explication and revelation of the literary power in blues-fueled songwriting. Those of you who have been with me for a while know that I've actually spent more time on the microphone as a singer-songwriter than as a podcaster, starting at the age of 16. And reading this book was a kind of exercise in spiritual genealogy. Or maybe it's kind of like paleometeorology, in that we're going back and examining the antecedents for our present atmosphere, all the stuff we take for granted. One of the most common human biases is to imagine that things were always this way. That's why origin stories are so deeply important. And like prospecting the stratigraphy of the Wyoming Badlands, reading this book dunked me into the flux and transformation that actually defines our world on time scales so slow, sometimes it takes a masterful work of history like this book to notice. Although it's highly unprofessional to say so, I will admit to kind of botching this interview through the sin of over-preparation. I took entirely too many notes, highlighted probably a full 20% of this book, got a bit ambitious with my questions, but Mike and Ernest are cool cats, and I am deeply grateful and delighted that their press office sought me out and that they were willing to sit down and indulge me in this exploration of their work. But before we get started, I just want to do the thing, you know, the song and dance, if you will, appreciating the new patrons that are helping me keep this show going. Chiara Piccinotti, Leo Niehorster-Cook, Ivy and Greg Bourgon, Tim Castell, and Ido Benai, along with everyone else bringing me incrementally closer to my goal of what Kevin Kelly called the 1,000 true fans that can make this podcast sustain itself. And also a special shout to Kevin Arthur Wolmet, who recently picked up my 2013 City of Jewels EP for 25 bucks on Bandcamp. Data analytics is its own kind of archaeology and... It's kind of depressing looking at your music sales peaking in 2014 and realizing. But anyway, let's use this. All of it goes into the stew, right? 
to peg this episode in time. I have other earlier recordings I was planning to put out first, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine this week has me reflecting on simple things, the way that just as layers of rock settle on one another, eventually the weight compresses ancient trees into diamond. The way Maya Angelou said, I know why the caged bird sings. I decided this episode had to jump the queue and go now, because we're living in a very Orphic hour in which work songs, protest music, anthems, dirges, and ballads bloom like lotuses from the shit of history. It's very clear that history isn't over right now. So yes, plenty more music to be made. Plenty more poetic song verse to write. Be sure to check the show notes. Get yourself a copy of this book and read it. It's great. Thank you and enjoy. Well, this is an amazing book. I'm so glad that you sent me a copy. I can't tell you how delighted I was to read this, how attentive I felt to it. It's been a long time since I read something that I feel like not only shed so much light on cultural history, but also helped me root my own mind and, and life and creative work in such a, a, a deep and well-wrought genealogy. So mm. I just want to start, Mike, in, in earnest by thanking you for this work and just politely suggesting that you write a sequel. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, really, I, I really wanted you to go even deeper into the past with it and bring it even further mm. into the present day. So, yeah. Okay, thank you. I think perhaps the right place to start is just to give our listeners a bit of personal background. Mike, how about you go first? And just to talk a little bit about your life and, and what brought you into writing this book with Ernest, and then we can take it from the other side. Sure. Uh, well, I'm, I'm a musician, a singer, songwriter. Um, I have my own band, Scrapomatic, and uh, I also play with the Tedeschi Trucks Band. And I've been doing that in different iterations uh, for about almost 20 years now. Um, and I met Ernest, uh, when he was writing a piece for the Washington post on Derek trucks, um, when I was in his band and he suggested that he talked to me on background and we started talking about poetry and, uh, music that we liked and we just kind of hit it off. And, uh, and so Ernest was the one who suggested that we attempt a book based on a course that he'd been teaching for many years called poetry and rock at, at Catholic university. So that's my bit. And I've been a, a college professor for over uh, 30 years. Uh, I, 20th century, 21st century American literature, and also obviously uh, deal with music uh, uh, too. And the thing that really made this book be as uh, good as I think it is, and that's pretty immodest to say, but nonetheless, I'm very proud of it, is that I was able to meet Mike 
and that what we were able to do was put this book uh, to, together together. Uh, I don't think any one person could have written this book. I think it took uh, the two of us with uh, my background in literature and music and Mike's background in music and literature. We had lots of overlap, but we also had differences that sharpened each other's thought and I think made the book stronger. Definitely. You know, one point, Mike, that you didn't just mention in your story is the Harvard graduate piece. And actually, I want to, not to jump ahead, although I'm terrible at like organizing these conversations in a linear way, but I know that one of the threads that you both pluck through this book and that I'd like to explore with you is the way that the history of poetic song verse, we we constantly see the the highbrow and the lowbrow being uh, introduced to each other and, and remixed. And so I think, I just think that that's like a a key detail in, in uh, the background here, right? That like Grammy award winning blues songwriter and Harvard graduate. And then you're meeting somebody who is an esteemed academic you know, in the sort of blues journalism context. So, I mean, I don't know if that's where we should start, but I do think maybe the right place to start is in helping sort of articulate the the thesis of this book, the fact that you have identified a literary genre that you argue is not getting enough attention. And you ask, you know, you propose a bunch of hypotheses for why that might be, uh, especially toward the end. Um, but one of those is this, the way that it does not capitulate to being contained within one stratum of society. Mm-hmm. And that, it, you know, this, I'd really love to hear you kind of unpack this idea of poetic song verse with the goal of exploring the, uh, the way that it challenges uh, boundaries in all these different ways. Yeah. Well, you know, one, one thing that we talked about very early on when we started conceiving of the book is how there there's certain artists in in the rock genre who are kind of considered poetic and you might see some lyrics by bob dylan or leonard cohen or Joni mitchell in the back of a contemporary poetry anthology but they always kind of seemed uh misplaced and orphaned there and and the lyrics themselves really didn't rise to the level of what we would call great poetry when they're disassociated from the music. So what, what we were investigating is this nexus, this, this place where poetry or poetic leaning lyrics meet music and how they help each other and reinforce each other and become this other thing. And as we were kind of articulating what we were thinking and, and talking about a couple of years into the writing process, Bob Dylan was all of a sudden awarded the Nobel Prize for literature. And in if, if you read the, the Nobel citation, they're basically saying, we know this isn't really literature, but it's literary. And anyway, he's great. He deserves a Nobel Prize. And that kind of just spoke to exactly what we were saying is there's this thing that we don't have a vocabulary or language to talk about. And, um, we're, and so we batted around some some terms or what we might call it and Ernest finally landed on poetic song verse and so that's kind of how we got there as talking about a new genre yeah and uh, I think that a key in the book is that 
the moment that we concentrate on is the moment that uh, blues-based popular music, rock, but other forms too, come into sustained contact with poetry in the beat cafes, uh, through Dylan's reading, and then giving interviews and and other uh, rock stars, Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, Jim Morrison, they start reading what he's reading and dipping into the poetry. And the poetry starts informing the songwriting. And it makes for a very unique moment where, as Mike was saying, the sonics, all the instrumental, the vocals, the performance are used to enhance the lyrics. And it becomes another thing. It becomes a literary genre that we call poetic song verse. There's a a point early in the telling of this story that (laughs) I'm going to try not to pull too many direct quotes from this, but it's just... It says, after the session for his second album, Blues and Haiku, Jack Kerouac wept and went on a drunken binge because the accompanying players, Al Korn and Zoot Sims, left the studio before listening to the tapes. Many poets were influenced by music and detected strong links between their poems and jazz or blues, but musicians tended to see little or no relationship between the two forms, though they were glad to get a paying gig. Like Clearly, you see this, as you just pointed to with Dylan winning the Nobel, you see this changing over the decades since, but then you have, you know, bookending this on the other end of it, you have uh, Gil Scott Heron's refusing his title as the father of rap and hip hop, like refusing to be acknowledged in that way, calling himself a bluesologist. And so I'm curious because it seems there's a, there's a sort of a media theory piece of this for me that, you know, you, you talk about the emergence of the rock star mythology, the way that these the, the mystique was constructed, and how much that had to do with with video and and like the image of musicians that didn't exist before. And yeah, I'm just curious to what degree you think a lot of this intermingling of styles, media, genre, etc has to do with simply the the, tech, the changing technological background uh, or where you see that kind of explanation faltering? Hmm. Well, you know, we, we, a, a few times in the books, we, we, we touch on this with poets and musicians kind of looking each other in the eye over the, uh, over the gorge and in each, each has what the other wants. The musicians want to be taken seriously intellectually and they want to have that the, the gravitas of 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 being involved in literature and and then the poets have what want what the musicians have which is cultural cachet they want to be hip they want to be cool and um, and so in a way it, it the, the the meaning of the two makes sense each each has what the others looking for in a sense not to say that all poets are are dorks <laughs> and all musicians are cool because that's been established. That's not true. But. Yeah. I think that it just came to the moment where the circumstances uh, were right. Uh, to speak to your point about media, uh, media is always changing the way music is thought about and recorded from you know, the introduction of the jukebox to electric uh, instruments 
And then what you get in the uh, 60s is what seems for the time, you know, of course not compared to today, is a media boom. And these musicians get a lot more coverage. And they need to make uh, themselves distinct from one another. And at the same time, as Mike was mentioning, they start to have these high art, uh, if you will, desires that they want to be taken uh, seriously. Dylan wants to be taken seriously as a, uh, a writer. And part of what happens with the media boom is that they have to seem more and more distinct from one another, and they start inventing persona, a voice to speak through. You know, Dylan uh, has had, as has been uh, many people have observed, he's had four or five persona throughout his career. I think Mick Jagger says at one point, I was changing who I was every six months. and. What adopting the persona allows uh, the, the artist to do, the gifted artist anyway, is to speak from a different perspective. And uh, it's why we see just this explosion from those early Dylan albums all the way into uh, the, the late to mid-70s of these uh, albums that are exquisitely written. That doesn't mean that there weren't great lyrics attached to songs before this time, because there were, but what you start getting is a concentration, and a concentration with a real emphasis, with a real intent on part of the artist to try to write something that they feel is powerful. So to that point, one of the threads that I feel really gets treated very well in this book is the tension in the world of a professional musician between that artistry and being an entertainer, right? The, like the artist as entertainer or the, you know, the entertainer as artist. And this, this, you know, you, you talk a lot about, um, like you give the example of uh, Bobby Gentry sort of just disappearing and how, how many how countless talented musicians just walked away or that's probably just a, a, a very small fraction of the ones that were never actually heard because they were illegible to the economy i mean you talk about you know motown and how marvin gay's success once gay starts writing about political topics was a surprise to who's it not not bobby rogers sorry the owner of Uh, Yeah, Barry Gordon was shocked because he was so sure that what's going on was going to be a commercial failure. And so that, you know, this speaks to something that you write later on when you're talking about gentry. You say, how do we talk about what we aren't supposed to talk about? And so, you know, I'd love because we haven't actually been uh, remiss and haven't actually anchored this in your history of the blues and the emotional basis for and and influences that weighed on the formation of the blues. But you talk a lot about misdirection in blues lyrics and the mm-hmm. way that black writers were hiding their actual intent from their producers, if not the initiated audience. So like this, this particular issue of the unspeakable, which also shows up in the psychedelic counterculture and hiding, you know, the euphemistic language and so on. Uh, so there's this relationship between, I guess what I'm saying is like 
truly novel work that cannot be yet understood or properly valued by the business in which a musician finds themselves. And then also Mm -hmm. the political danger of speaking truthfully. And I'd love to hear you both talk about that and how it shows up through your book. Uh, Sure. Well, you know, with, with, with the blues, we, we kind of identify for pillars of the blues, what make it the blues. And we don't have to go too in depth, but one is insistent rhythm. Uh, one is the blues form, A-A-B, which is usually iterated in a 12-bar blues. You make a statement, you repeat the statement, and then you, there's a responding statement. The third part is blue notes, which are quarter or half tones, which don't fall on the Western scale. We have to take our instruments, and whether it's guitar, you have to bend up to it. Or if a piano, you play two adjacent notes uh, to give the facsimile of, of, of blue notes, and uh, which which are just very humanizing they they are humane (laughs) and people can identify with that but thirdly the main thing is authenticity of of feeling and blues creates this space where you can say whatever you want anything is allowed from the the gory and the terrible to the exultant and we give the example of uh there's a song by skip james uh, 2220 and it's just this beautiful keening blues and and you don't realize unless you've listened to it a couple three times that he's talking about cutting his lover in half with a shotgun but anything is allowed in the blues because it's it's this forum between performer and audience to have emotional expiation to to get off your mind whatever you want to get off your mind but that said when uh, we, we use another example of, of skip james who has a song called crow jane and you realize he's singing about maybe a woman named Crow Jane and how he's going to kill her and put her down in her grave. That could be what he's singing about. But anybody who was initiated, I guess, and and was hip to what he was saying knew that he was talking about getting rid of Jim Crow in in the South. And um, that was a very revolutionary thing for a black man to be saying in the 1930s that could get you killed. Um, But, but, it was a risky thing, but it was also an authentic thing because he meant it. But also, I think he knew that it would speak to the people who understood the blues dynamic. They'd know what he was talking about. And I think that's the same thing uh, when you get into Dylan and you get into the psychedelic music, too, is it's it, the language isn't necessarily coded, but it's available for the initiated, for, for those who are cool enough to get what's going on. Um, and, and I think that works in the artist's favor and it works in the audience's favor. They feel elected and, and the artist feels like he's talking to his people finally, or her people. Um, anyway. To, to pick up on what Mike was saying, the blues having that, uh, frank, straightforward language. And even when it's coded, even when there's a story that is not apparent on top. It's still direct statements, blunt direct statements. And uh, as rock starts, rock and roll in the 50s starts evolving out of the blues, what happens too is American poetry starts to change. It changes away from uh, the very complicated, elusive, modernist poetry of, say, T.S. Eliot or Wallace Stevens. And what you start getting is a poetry that is based instead of on uh, 
you know, modernist aesthetics or traditional uh, metrics, what you start getting is a, a poetry that's ba based on the human voice. And the blues are based on the human voice. And that creates the synergy where the two forms can then come together. Uh, as we, uh, an example that we give in the book, if you were a relatively well-educated uh, young musician, uh, and you were trying to look for sources for lyrics, if you were looking uh, at T.S. Eliot, maybe if you're Bob Dylan, you get something. But that wasn't true for most blues musicians. But when they went to beat cafes and other uh, venues that featured contemporary poetry or read it in books and heard rich, sophisticated language in the human voice, speaking uh, more plainly, but rhythmically, they could find a source for lyrics. And that's exactly what happened with, uh, with Dylan, with Joni Mitchell, with uh, McCartney, with Lennon, with Jagger, with Jim Morrison. And that is what created poetic song verse. So, yeah, this leads into this other question I had for you, which is about another tension you explore through the book in the distance between the artist and their audience and the way, you know, you talk about early how in, you know, in the blues, there's no need to reserve one's approval or disapproval until the end when applause traditionally is invited, the response is instantaneous and becomes part of the story. And then I, let's telescope that through Jim Morrison inviting people onto the stage, getting thrown off stage by a security guard who thinks that he's crashing his own concert, the way that the punks challenged this. And then now we've got people reacting in real time when you go live on Facebook. And But in the midst of all of that, you talk about the way that the revolutionary and forgive me for trying to like bite off more than we can chew with every single question, but like this one, the, the way that the revolutionary energy, the transgressive liberating component of first the blues and then early rock and roll and then uh, reinvigorated rock and roll and then punk and so on. It's like, there's always this like molten hot thing that cools and it's co-opted by by industry and it's turned into exactly what it was originally against and mm. you know i just i'm curious about your thoughts about this sort of back and forth between the songwriter as i guess kind of like a griot you know like someone who's mm. part of their community who's a story keeper for the people engaged with them at eye level mm -hmm. and then you get into these situations where you have like a mature ecosystem where you've got Robert Plant and Jimmy Page way up there at some great distance from the audience. And then things kind of collapse again. And then you've got Bruce Springsteen with a real long guitar cable playing in the crowd. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just your thoughts about the stratification and the alienation. Well, I, I think, you know, again, if, if we're mostly talking about poetic song verse in the rock genre, Rock is, 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 is an outgrowth of blues. I mean, blues is the direct, you know, precedent for rock. And, and those four elements of the blues that I identified is uh, the, the main purpose, I think, that they serve is, is that 
what the blues is trying to do, it's, it's almost like I see it almost as a, a small ritual. Um, it, it, and it is, it is trying to break down barriers. It, it is trying to open communication. It is trying to level the playing field between the performer and the audience. And it's, it's inviting people in. I mean, that's what an insistent rhythm does. If, if a rhythm comes straight, <laughs> everybody can rely on it and everybody can immediately participate. Whether you're clapping, whether you're dancing, whatever. It's the same thing with the AA blues form. You, you make a statement, you repeat it. You suddenly have people on the hook who need to hear the, the B part. They need to hear the response. It's bringing people in. Um, and that's the same thing with blue notes, those humanizing notes, uh, that everybody can relate to. And then finally, the authenticity of feeling is what you want to hear. You want this guy to be, or this woman or whoever's performing, you want it to be as real as possible because you want to identify with it. Um, and so, Blues being the foundational part of rock and roll, I think that's always going to be part of rock and roll, is that it is it is constantly leveling. It is working against hierarchy. And, and I think as you identify those historic kind of ups and downs in, in the history of rock, I think that's what it constantly does to itself. Um, it, 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 it returns to those base commands of the blues, is that we are breaking down walls here. We're bringing people in. And we're leveling the playing field. And and uh, I think this played especially well to um, the moment that poetic song verse was really taking off, which is uh, with th- those early Dylan albums, and then especially with those Dylan albums of the mid '60s, and then all the other bands explode. What is also happening politically are things like the civil rights movement. Uh, a women's movement, and more than anything, the war in Vietnam. And what that does is these are serious topics, uh, and it unites not only but particularly youth culture. And it gives the songwriters something to say, not always directly about the war in Vietnam or the civil rights movement, of course, but it makes them start questioning and start thinking about things that they are dissatisfied with in society and looking for alternatives. So it gives them topics. It gives them serious things to say. It leads them to start thinking about themselves, their relationships to others um, in a more potent way. And I think that plays an important role in creating poetic song verse. So I want to backtrace for a minute here because we're, we're there in the vein with blues to talk about the role of pain and suffering in all of this and, and to talk about it both at the the level of the individual artist, as well as these sort of larger historical movements. I, I love that you, you uh, cite Lewis Hyde and trickster makes this world, which is one of my favorite books. You quote him as saying trickster speaks freshly where language has been blocked, gone dead or lost its charm. And some shameless double dealer is needed to get outside the rules and set tongues wagging again. And then later you, you quote Robert Bly, who talks about leaping poetry, uh, associative freedom and psychic flight in language and spirit, and how reinvigorating poetry largely resided in what he called leaping, leaping language. So there's something about, as someone who has 
found myself accidentally trespassing on someone's land or foolishly overstepping an invisible social or cultural boundary. Diana or there, we'll leave that in. That's <laughs> it's just perfect. But there's something about on the show we talk about collapse a lot and and the silver lining in sort of the end of the world as we know it. My friends they call it doomer optimism on their podcast. And, and so I'm just the emotional complexity and the way that it's related to suffering and like, I guess, specifically trauma and the well-described effects on creativity and like creativity as a kind of spiritual path among the traumatized. Yeah. I would just love to pull the string and let the two of you riff on that and see where it takes us. Well, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> with the blues, what I hear most often is, I know about the blues, but I could never sing the blues because maybe the person I'm, I'm not black or I wasn't raised in the South and I haven't suffered, you know, at the hands of society or something like that. And, um, I, I immediately disagree with that. I, I think the great thing about the blues is yes, it, it was definitely the end result of, of African Americans who created it, uh, out of a pressing cultural need. And it, it kind of, came to the form uh, in the very discreet, perfect little form that it is. But the blues is such a part of all of American musics now that it really belongs to everybody. And I think the beauty of it is, is that whether you're black or white or whomever, every single human being can identify with, with suffering. And again, the blues isn't just about suffering, but the blues is not afraid of suffering, does not shy away from it. But it, it's definitely... It, it, it is not just the, the realm of, of African Americans. I just, that's kind of what I wanted to stress. That there was an article the other day in Rolling Stone talking to a bunch of younger black blues artists who are bemoaning, you know, the state of, of blues and that it's been taken over by white kind of blues rock guys. And, and my response to that would be like, well, it's always been there and it always will be there. So what are you going to make of it? Our, our saxophone player said something the other month that I just still find so humorous. Uh, he's black. And we were talking about the state of the blues. And he said, well, if you leave shit lying around long enough, white people are going to pick it up and say it's theirs. So if you want to make, <laughs> if you want, if you want to re-inject some african Americanness in the blues, it's just, it's just a matter of enough practitioners picking it up. So when it comes to talk about cultural appropriation stuff with the blues. I, I, don't, I don't really buy it. it it's kind of there for, for all of us, especially Americans who have an innate understanding of it in a way that people, uh, you know, in, in Europe, for example, do not. Uh, I think it's one of our, our heritages and birthrights as, as Americans. And, and part of my playing blues is, um, is trying to point that out, that it's really our shared cultural heritage. And, and we know about it innately, whether we admit it or not, as, as Americans. Part of it, too, is the blues evokes a lot of tones. Your question is, was about how negative experiences, suffering of, of whatever kind, uh, affects the artist. And without a doubt, uh, that strong emotion. And in general, the better the artist, the more tones the wider range of feeling that artist is able to evoke, whether it's a William Faulkner or a Ralph Ellison, 
in the novel or uh, you know, a, a blues musician through his or her uh, voice. And if you, if you listen to Dylan, for instance, there is just not uh, one uh, tone, one emotion that he draws on. And often he draws on various emotions at the same time that seem contradictory. And it creates another type of mix. But I think that's part of the richness of art in general. And in general, the greater the artist, the more they have to tap into the, all the different, uh, the array of feelings that human beings have. So, yeah, just to explore this a little bit more I'm thinking about a conversation I once had with author Lawrence Gonzalez, who wrote a book called Deep Survival, about what determines whether someone does or does not survive a life-threatening, sudden, like a plane crash or a shark attack or whatever. But then he wrote a sequel called Surviving Survival, about trauma and what it takes for someone to get on with their life. And one of the things he spoke about in that book is that there's basically three ways to get on with it. One is through writing or creative work. One is through travel. And one is through helping others less fortunate than yourself. And that this is how people kind of hold themselves together after a a traumatic event. And two of those seem like they're about exploration. And they link into something that you brought up a a little while ago in in talking about the, the rock star mythos component of all of this, which is that I, I was like, I really felt for Bob Dylan in the passage where you talk about how he starts to become a victim of his own reputation. You know, he feels that he's mischaracterized. He wants to go underground from the underground. Marvin Gaye has a similar thing. Jim Morrison, you talk about his frustration with his image as a sex symbol, which he created. You know, he, he assiduously helped create it. And plenty of people have argued the same kind of thing has happened to many others that are like in the pantheon here that there's a big piece of you talk about it as the faustian component of uh, being able to achieve success the faustian twist the fairy tale sleight of hand that accompanies wish granting it's possible to get what you want before you understand the nature of what you want and i don't know there's just there's something about again the tension between like even genre categorization you know the way that you talk about how in an individual piece of music we're playing with people's expectations mm-hmm. you know you're you're giving them like some of the best blues is holding that basic blues structure for long enough to deceive the audience that it's going to keep doing that and then it takes some weird turn mm-hmm. so yeah i just i'm curious what your thoughts are on the role of surprise and the unexpected in all of this and the way that you know that some of the pioneers of poetic song verse grappled in a very real visceral way in their lives with again being subject to the oppression of other people's expectations of them and how they were able to trickster their way out of this and what that says about the development of poetic song verse generally hmm. Uh, well, I or mean, any piece of that. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I can speak to that. I mean, just as a, as a performer, for example, um, it, I, I, I meet a lot of 
people who are up and coming musicians and they want to know how it works and how do you break into the business and stuff like that. And, and my answer is usually, well, I mean, it, it, it's like my friend Paul and I, who's in Scrapomatic with me, we used to always comment. Uh, our motto was the same as the New York lotto is you, you got to be in it to win it. And you find success in it by doing it. And then if you do gain some success by doing it, then you have to do it more. <laughs> and then you have to do it more and more and more. And um, so I, I think what people don't necessarily see who aren't on the performing side of things is that um, you, you have to get out there every night and you have to give everything you've got. And then the next night you have to do it again. And there are nights when you're not going to feel like it. And there is no, I don't feel like it. It has to be done. Um, and, and, and I think that's what happens to a lot of these musicians and rock stars and people who find great successes. It, this thing literally takes on a life of its own. And uh, it's, it's hard to keep giving people what you have. Um, it, it, it's just, it's a very odd way to, to make a living. <laughs> and, um, and, and you also have to find ways to isolate parts of yourself and, and not give everything you have. You can't, you can't do it a hundred percent every night because that's just technically impossible. You, you would flame out and, and people do, they have, but I don't know. I mean, that's, that's just kind of my perspective on it as a person who, you know, travels around and performs about a hundred, hundred performances a year. It, you know, just Ernest, I'd love to hear you speak to this, but just it reminds me of one of my favorite live album quotes of all time, which was Ani DeFranco saying, "The worst part of this job is that I have to go to every single Ani DeFranco concert." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and and it's true, and and you have to begin to develop strategies to keep reserves of energy and emotional energy and and creativity and uh and and you know you, you don't want to get to the point where you are just using a bag of tricks and you're not being genuine or authentic or honest but you also have to have strategies and it's it's a weird conversation that you end up having with yourself about how you can deliver every night yeah what i'd add to that is that in the moment that poetic song verse is really developing it's that these people very young people. You have to remember the figures we've mentioned were from their late teens to mid twenties when they were exploding nationally and internationally. And there, then there was the added pressure that, um, as Lucinda Williams put it, after those Dylan albums, everyone wanted to be an artist and not uh, just an entertainer. And of course, they had to be both. They had to entertain. And then what they also wanted to do was create something lasting and worthwhile and that spoke to people. And th think of that. You're 23, you're 24 years old. And you have that pressure on you, not just on what you've written, but what you have to write next to live up to that. And it's not just that a few uh, thousand people are going to notice. It's going to be tens and tens of millions of people. And that's a lot to deal with. And I think that type of pressure affects artists in that some drop out or drop out for a while, as Dylan himself did, 
Or another effect is they keep inventing persona. They keep inventing different voices to speak through. So I think all of those personal and cultural uh, uh, pressures come to bear on the creation of this art form. I'd like to keep jumping around at this point and invite the two of you to talk a little bit about this, this chapter that you have on the fantastic beyond surrealism and, and psychedelia, because it, it, it strikes me that, again, there's this force that I see in the totalizing influence of electronic and digital media, the way that we're, that we're wrapped up in it now that has to do a lot with not just challenging the like cultural stratification of modernity, you know, this hard line between the, the poet and the songwriter, but also boundaries pretty much of all kinds, including the boundary between the real and the unreal. And I mean, this is like, we're living in an age of people are teaching courses on how to recognize deep fakes and disinformation now at the college level. So as you note, that psychedelia abetted the confluence of high and popular culture that Dylan the Beats and others advanced, a phenomenon that further unsettled people's assumptions and helped energize language and sonics in rock and poetry. I'm also thinking of other writing I've seen on moving text in the psychedelic videos, you know, the way that the sort of synesthetic component of an LSD trip remixes sight and sound and, and the other senses. And, I, and I'm just, anyway, that's just the diving board for the two of you to explore how this is actually a much bigger conversation than merely the psychedelic. Mm-hmm. But it, it has these roots in an interrogation of the realist assumptions of the modern age and where that's brought us and how Poetic Songverse has, has ridden that and contributed to our the way that we think about it now in the 21st century. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in that chapter, we, we talk about how, uh, you know, if poetic song verse has elements of, of actual poetry in it, this wanting to rise above the, the quotidian day to day to be different and outside of what culture expects of one and trying to get to some sort of greater truth. I mean, I, I think that's just part of writing poetry in general. But um, as, as poetic songbirds started to take off, it just happened to coincide with the bursting out of the counterculture in the 60s, which was really fueled by, you know, and or, or accompanied by, complemented sometimes, or maybe not, uh, drugs and, and drug use, and especially LSD. Um, and, you know, we all know the famous uh, example of, of Dylan turning on the Beatles to marijuana, et cetera, et cetera. But we talk about how drug use in the counterculture and in, in rock and roll and, and in songwriting, how it, how it appears there, um, when it's used as, as a tool for exploration, uh, can lead to very successful poetic songbirds. Um, it can also not <laughs> and, and can lead to very uh, trite, recycled ideas about what, what drug use is all about. I mean, we use the example of um, Voodoo Child's Slight Return, Jimi Hendrix's song, as, as something that is very successful, uh, probably drug-related poetic song verse. And then there's the Amboy Dukes, which was Ted Nugent's first band that has a song, Journey to the Center of Your Mind, which is almost like a, 
uh, in idiotic cliffs notes. It seems it seems to be a drug song with somebody who's probably never taken drugs, <laughs> and so there's there there can be this sentimentalizing, simplifying thing that happens. Uh, but there can also be this opening up uh, per- perceptively and um, and uh, kind of heading into new frontiers of the imagination. Uh, Mike, that that uh, song, the uh, that Ted Nugent uh, Amboy's Duke song, it might also be the product of somebody who's just taken way too many drugs. That's true. Could go either way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've met those people at Burning Man. They think that they're saying something <laughs> profound. Yeah. Uh, so, something else to point to is that, of course, uh, the LSD, which we should remember, is legal in most of the United States for most of uh, the 60s and has featured you know, LSD art on the cover of Life magazine. There are experiments with it at, at Harvard and other uh, universities. And it, it does have a powerful effect on the music, but it's not just uh, uh, LSD and hallucinogenic drugs. It's surrealism. It's symbolist poetry. All of those things, all, all of those movements that had uh, influenced uh, the beats and given that surrealist quality to beat poetry and other type, deep image poetry of, uh, of the time and many other uh, forms. And part of the reason why Dylan is such a catalyst is that he uh, is reading and listening to all of this. And so he's the one who's able to bring it all together, really synthesize it and uh, point the way. There's a particular aspect of this, which I find really curious and kind of consistent through, through all of this, which yeah, you talk about Federico Garcia Lorca and the duende and the, you know, the notion of this, this, uh, how is, See, Lorca writes, seeking the duende, there is neither map nor discipline. It exhausts, rejects all the sweet geometry we understand. It shatters styles. I love that you actually repeated this quote at the end of the chapter because I was like, now I got to underline it twice. And yeah, there's something about this relationship between questioning the known, questioning the, like the, the bedrock of quotidian reality, reaching out beyond it animated by the dissatisfaction, but also the sort of, you know, the duende is a spirit that comes up through the earth, through your feet while you're dancing. One of the things that, that seems to come out here is not to get like, I don't know, too, I don't know, philosophical about this, but like the resurgence of the non-human mm-hmm. or the, the influence of the supposedly immaterial in a kind of like non-dual relationship with matter and the body and all of that. So, you know, there's something about uh, one of my favorite historians, William Irwin Thompson, he had a chapter in his book coming into being where he talked about the computer screen as the portal through which all of the spirits that they talked about in the Rig Veda, the humans and animals teamed up to shut out the spirit world from the human world. And that, our our technologies have allowed them back in and eric davis wrote he's a, i don't know if any of you're familiar with mm. uh, his stuff he, he was a music critic for years he wrote a, a fabulous book on 
technology and mysticism and, and religious belief called technosis back in the in the 90s. And he said a lot about what he calls reanimism, like the way that high technology is returning us to this sense of being immersed in a an ecosystem of intelligences that are really other to us. And yeah, I'm just curious because this is not, I don't know, it's not something that you really like linger on so much in this book, but it's a, a strand that I see playing out through through the history of poetic song verse about the way that the pre-modern magical traditions, hoodoo, mm-hmm. and all of these things are major features of the history of blues and, and rock and roll. And, you know, and I, I, it strikes me that making this merely a story about people is maybe in some way almost missing the point that there are other forces at play, not to get too, I don't know, superstitious. But. No, but I, I think that's, that's traditionally been a, a, an element of the blues is this, you know, interfacing with the, the dark arts or, or the devil, you know, the famous story of the blues man meeting the devil at the crossroads at midnight and being gifted with this extra otherworldly talent. I mean that's that's baked in to to the to the blues and and legends of the blues and we kind of make a correlation there between the idea of of the poet as this necromancer who's dealing with forces beyond our world and in the European tradition too and you know it's interesting when it when this starts manifesting itself in in uh, poetic song verse because we have this new thing this new media entity that develops, which is this, the rock star who, you know, through their work and through their concerts, but also through the culture and the media become larger than life. You know, even to this day call them rock gods, you know, and they took on the stature of being otherworldly, you know, almost deity like. And again, I think that is going back to what we were talking about previously. I think that consumed people. I mean, obviously there's all the famous rock stars who never made it past 27, you know, who died. But also I think that that overwhelming persona really made artists feel like they were trapped. And, and I think it, it, it led to things like people disappearing or, you know, cooking up other elements or different personas so they could keep going forward. And in every age you've have uh, artists who are trying, who, who, who tap into or attempting to tap into or assessing uh, what it would mean to tap into something beyond the material, mm-hmm. whether it's the Greeks with the various uh, gods or uh, you know, uh, some more contemporary uh, uh, forms of, of spiritual practice or other types of practice what artists are looking for is to mine the, the full experience. And that certainly for human beings is part of the uh, uh, full experience. And in order to I- evoke that, we see the, you know, whether it's Dylan or Joni Mitchell or Jim Morrison reading superior, uh, uh, surrealist poetry or taking LSD or uh, contemplating different forms of mysticism, what they are doing is looking for uh, perspectives, 
ways of seeing the world. And that's part of the dynamic that happens with poetic song verse is that these people, their, their intent is to try to put together something that's uh, artistic, something that goes for the lyrics to go just beyond being a vehicle to carry the melody. So, you know, this, there's a section here where you're talking about, um, it almost seems like you're making an argument here that, let's see, where is this, that Ken Kesey was kind of indirectly responsible for the concept album, which I won't, <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I, I, it's fascinating. You're, you're talking about the magic bus trip, and you quote Stone's history of this, and saying, being there, mere vulgar location was instantly beside the point. From the moment the first demented teenager waved a naked farewell as Neil Cassidy threw the clutch, everything entered the numinous. And again, given everything that you've said about the tension between the artist as a human being and the artist as an institution, I think you know one place that we might ground this conversation is in the way that Warhol's horrific prophecy came true and everyone has their 15 minutes of fame on the social web. And now, regardless of your level of celebrity, the alienating influence of social media is one in which everyone is curating themselves for everyone else. Everyone is acting like the individual is an institution now in a way that people like the people you write about in this book were suffering in a much more unique way in their time. And so I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about all of that, about the way that it seems like this is a genie we can't put back in the bottle, that there is a complicated nonlinear kind of boundary between the private and the public now, between who I think I am, who, who other people think I am, the, the kind of person I'm trying to project. And I think if we're to, again, sort of root the conversation around poetic song verse in something that listeners can apply to their own lives, it might be in that, in the way that there is this inherent conflict between the, the person and the story of the person. That is, as you note in this chapter on the fantastic, a huge part of the success of this form and of the kind of religious hold that popular songwriting has over people and the way that people feel that they're like participating in these legendary tales. Mm. I don't know. So that's, again, that's sort of a turn that any way you want kind of question. Well, I, I, I think part of an element of poetic song verse um, that, that is definitely rooted in, in the poetic side of it is that suddenly people are writing songs that um, have the, depth of meaning that, that poetry does, that intentionally these songs are packed to the rafters and overstuffed with different layers of imagery, different meanings that you can peel off it. It, 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 it instructs the listener to return to the work very much like poetry itself does. And we, we quote Mick Jagger a couple times saying the same thing where he's like, you have to remember what absolute garbage popular music was at the time. It was how much is this doggy in the window? And then all of a sudden, you've got the lyrics on the backs or in the sleeves of these albums, and you can sit there and listen to 
a song a thousand times and and still get something new from it if it's well rendered, you know. And I think that's part of the appeal and part of the allure is that these are things of value that you'll have to live with. You'll you'll have to continue to go back to the well to figure out what this is and why it's meaningful to you. And that said, too, I hate to interrupt, but um, I, I wasn't quite sure we we're going to go this long, and I need to, I need oh, to go yeah. I need to go to a rehearsal. <laughs> oh, so I'm the best possible reason. I, I'm sorry to to have to bail out, but I, I could go on forever. This is really fun. Thank you. Yeah, we'll break a leg. Okay, and but Ernest is he's a fount of wisdom. I, I definitely keep talking. <laughs> I will and. <laughs> and I've been meaning to uh, actually email you both here for a while, but I didn't want to just blow up your inbox before we actually have this conversation. So I look forward to following up with you. Yeah. Uh, Please do. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Great respect for your work and d- deeply enjoyed your solo album. Oh, have thank you. One. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, to, to just get back to your point about the genie in the bottle, uh, the genie can never be put back in the bottle. Robert Penn Warren says at the end of his great poem, uh, Audubon, the name of the, the name of the story is time, but you must not pronounce it its name. And that's what Dylan is trying to do. Dylan takes all of these different sources going back to, you know, Shakespeare be uh, farther back than that. All the, the blues, folk music wordplay of jazz and brings it all into the moment. As he says in his Nobel Prize uh, speech, he says, what I wanted to do was bring it all and make it, um, make it live with the current of the day. And that's what happens is he takes all of this material and makes it with the current of the day that so many people, but particularly young people, are all experiencing of what's happening, and uh, as well as as other musicians. And I think that's a big reason why it uh, takes off so much. So I I have two more quickies, if you have the time for it. Yeah. One is just a question for you about where you see, given the historical network, you know, not like a single trajectory, but just this ball of constantly co-evolving influences. Looking back so carefully at how this has all gone over the last hundred years, do you feel like you have any sense for where music is headed? I mean, in, in particular, you know, like it seems like there, as you say, towards the end of this book, that this is going on now, not just in the U.S. This is happening all over the world. There are lyrically ambitious songwriters working in rock and other modes in China, Japan, Korea, Russia, Africa, Eastern and North- Western Europe, Scandinavia, everywhere. You know, so at what point does it become not just one thing, or did it become not just one thing? You know, and and is there anything that we can say about the future of poetic song verse that isn't also not true in, in the, well, well, yeah. What, what, what I think there's always been a lot of different types of artists. You know, one of my favorite bands is the Allman brothers band. 
The Allman Brothers Band uh, were probably the best instrumental uh, rock band ever. But what they are not is practitioners of poetic song verse. You also have at the same time that Dylan and the Allman Brothers and all these folks are, are, are playing, you have just pure pop music, which is top 40 uh, entertainment. What you did hit a period from the mid-60s to probably the mid-70s and you know, a, a little beyond is that you had a concentration of writers who were serious uh, musicians and also very serious lyricists who were also the most popular musicians of the, of the time. You know, think of the Stones, the Beatles, the, the, the Doors. They were all over the radio, all over culture, and they were trying to do uh, something ambitious. I think you get similar things with, uh, with some of the rap artists in uh, the the 80s and 90s and into this century. What I will say is that now probably the folks who are the most serious musicians lyrically still exist, but they are no longer, uh, you know, the most popular top of the charts uh, musicians, which doesn't mean they aren't making a living and they aren't selling well. Uh, uh, Jason Isbell certainly uh, sells some records, but uh, you know, Jason Isbell does not sell uh, records like the Rolling Stones sold records or like Joni Mitchell sold records. So I, I you think you mentioned Hendrick Lamar in this book, but yeah. he's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, he's fantastic. And, and th- that's where I say the, 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 the rap hip hop side of things is where the great lyrical content uh, has been kept alive, not only there, but perhaps that's the most, the, the most visible, most popular type of artist that keeps writing in this mode. I'm asking you to to step out on a limb and do something most that makes most academics uncomfortable, which is to prophesy. <laughs> but do, do you have a, Do you feel like you have a sense for for where the momentum of all of this is taking us? Well, I think that uh, the moment is always uh, waiting for the the great artist. In many ways, Dylan seemed to have popped out of nowhere and he ignited, not that he came out, and he didn't come out of nowhere, as we detail in the book. Uh, uh, there was a, a many things that he uh, learned and he had predecessors, but he was able to put it all together. And I think that's probably what would need to uh, happen and what will happen eventually is someone will come along who can put things together in a different way and that it will inspire other artists and then that will uh, take off. But there are certainly serious artists writing uh, uh, today. Uh, someone like uh, our friend, our good friend, Luther Dickinson with the North Mississippi All-Stars just uh, is a sensational lyricist and a sensational musician and puts all types of great things together. But you know, what Luther with the all-stars music is always pushing ahead and pulling from behind. 
you know, they're deeply rooted in the, in the blues, but then also looking for ways to experiment with uh, new types of techniques and forms. So I guess the last question I have for you is a more personal question. And it's just about, given what you, your comments earlier about how so much of this revolutionary creativity emerged among teenagers or 20 somethings. And, you know, that you, you mentioned in this book that the, you know, Pete Seeger is like, I hope I die before I get old, you know, this, and then, Oh, well, that didn't happen. Uh, and, you know, so much of what animated the punk movement, you know, now like Portlandia makes fun of these people, you know, for, you know, the, the yuppies that, that uh, the way that, Again, to you know, to borrow on on Lewis Hyde and his book Common as Air, he talks about you know this these sort of successive enclosures of the commons. And I'm at the point in my life now. I'm at 38. I I look back on my 20s and I I pray that those were not my most innovative, <laughs> creative years as a writer and as as a musician. But it's also an you know that kind of getting into the middle of one's life is also something that you see in institutions, you know, that an institution is not just an individual is also in some ways, you know, just gets to an age where it's no longer about growth and discovery and it's about maintenance and repair. So anyway, I guess my question for you is just reflecting on your life and what of music history you have lived through, how you see these kinds of concerns and these kinds of questions and, and what elder insight you might have to offer in your own personal reflections about these kinds of things? Well, I, I think a lot, uh, as, as you were pointing out, and as we had mentioned, uh, things evolve oftentimes from youth culture because it's a fresh perspective. It's a fresh uh, set of eyes. We have to remember that literary modernism in English was invented in the 1920s by a group of maybe 50 to uh, 100 artists, most of them in their 20s. You know, it's, it's Hemingway li- living uh, broke in, uh, in, in Paris along with a bunch of other uh, uh, artists. And you, you have a, a – so it's often out of that youth dynamic – that you get new forms evolving. At the same time, what that doesn't mean is that that once an artist has matured and gotten older, that they're that they're done with, because many artists continue to keep uh, writing great material and uh, recording fantastic songs. Uh, uh, look at Springsteen, well into mid and even late middle age. But usually what happens is they find their form in their youth. And then after they found that form, they might change it, modify it, go in different directions, but that's what forms the, the basis for it. And I think it's that fresh perspective that you have uh, when you're young, 
where that usually happens, although it certainly not exclusively happens. Some there are artists that don't, although less in the music genre, but that don't really find their groove until uh, they're well into uh, middle age. So there is uh, no formula. The only consistent thing is to keep going at it, uh, keep uh, trying, keep seeing what you can find, what you can come up with. Uh, don't be too enamored with the success and don't be too frightened of failure. That's a beautiful place to put it, Ernest. Thank you so much. You and Mike both wrote just a, a spectacular book. And I also appreciate you collating all of the songs that you reference in an amazing Spotify playlist that I'll make sure to put in the, the show notes. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for taking yeah, this, this much time. <laughs> this, this, this has been this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I think Mike is. I don't know if he, they have a show tonight or uh, uh, if they're going to just a, a rehearsal sound check. Uh, but boy, well, you know, I saw Tedeschi Trucks Band. They've been in town in D.C. and there's a band that you're getting spectacular shows. And Mike would never say this, but. Uh, he is a great lyricist, not a good lyricist. He's a great lyricist. And part of it is that what Mike has done is he's so well-read, so versed in all the arts that you bring, he is able to bring all of these different things into his uh, song making. Yeah, notably, I will be sure to point people towards his work and, and yours beyond this book when we actually publish this. So it'll be a few weeks, but I'll let you know. And now that we've actually spoken, I feel like I can actually drop some stuff that some of my own work I'll send. I'll, I'll, is it okay for me to e like email yeah, you once before this? Absolutely. Okay. You can feel free to reach out anytime. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I, I have a ton of people that I'll be recommending your book to. So anyway, have a well, lovely night and I'll much be much appreciated. Take care. Thanks again for listening. Follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Michael Garfield. If you would like to steep more persistently and ambiently in the intellectual atmosphere of this program, find the music for future fossils at michaelgarfield.bandcamp.com. And please help yourself to extensive public archives of book club recordings and additional content that never made it to the main RSS feed at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. We have some awesome episodes coming up. I'm excited to share with you. Thanks for holding tight. And until then, have a most excellent now.